You're listening to the sermon audio from Covenant Church at Tuscaloosa. Our prayers that this encourages you in the Lord. To you, pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, good morning. Hope everybody's well. If you have your Bible, you can go ahead and open it to Acts chapter ten. We got a good bit of work to do today um, in covering Acts chapter ten in its entirety. And if you are new with us. Um, it's probably important for you to know that we do preach verse by verse through books of the Bible. And we've uh, been in the book of Acts since Easter Sunday. Um, and we will be in the book of Acts, Lord willing, all the way at least until next Easter Sunday. And so this is the way that we approach Scripture. We feel like it's, it's the appropriate way to, to do that, to give the whole counsel of God. And this morning we find ourselves in Acts 10. And because of the, uh, the, the amount that we have to cover this morning, I'm not going to be able to give just uh, the normal introduction or overlap that I would um, usually give. And so if you are new to us, I would encourage you to go back. You can look on our website and you can see the prior messages. Because uh, I may say some things or address some things this morning or reference some things that maybe you don't have a real good context for. Um, but I'd love for you to go back and listen to that and kind of get up to speed. One of the things that I have tried to say every week, um, I don't know that I have every week, but I've, I've wanted to say it every week, I intended to, is that the book of Acts is incredibly relevant for us. Um, a lot of times our approach to Scripture, even though we may have an affinity for it and believe that it's God's Word, there's still sort of in the back of some of our minds that uh, this is an ancient text. Like, is it actually relevant for us? Can I apply these things to my life today? How do I go about even understanding something that is so old? Uh, well, um, uh, to encourage you, it, it is relevant for us today. In fact, as we've seen since Acts chapter 1 in the first few verses, God's intent for His gospel uh, was to make its way to the ends of the earth. Um, God's intent in salvation and redemption was not only for the Jewish people, it was also for the Gentiles. And, and so the Gentiles are everyone who isn't a Jew. And so that includes probably the majority of us. Um, some of you may be ethnically Jewish, but the vast majority of the people that live here and that we know and associate with are not ethnically Jew. And so the gospel in Acts chapter 10 is making its way towards us. And brothers and sisters, like that's relevant. Like we can trace our conversion back to what we're going to read this morning in Acts chapter 10. There are even some that would argue that Acts chapter 10 is the most important chapter, not only in the book of Acts, but also in the entire New Testament because it sets the stage for the spread of the gospel to the ends of the earth. Now, before we jump in, I want to acknowledge something. Uh, there are four people groups mentioned in the book of Acts. There are the Jews, there are the Samaritans, there are the Gentiles and there are the God-fearers. Now, this is going to, uh, you'll understand here in a second as to why I bring this up this morning. But the Jews are clearly those that are ethnically Jew. The Samaritans are those that are ethnically from Samaria. Uh, the, the, there was an intense hatred between the Jew and the Samaritan. But there's also a hatred or a disdain. Maybe not as much a hatred as it is um, uh, the way the Jews approach the Gentiles and that they are actually unclean. And they had a tremendous amount of law around the fact that the Gentiles were unclean. What the Gentiles ate, what the Gentiles drank, what the Gentiles did. All of that was considered unclean for the Jew. So you have the Jew, and you have the Samaritans who are also Gentiles, but they are in a sort of a category of their own because of the hatred there. And then you also have the God-fearers. Now the God-fearers are those that are ethnically Gentile, 
but Jewish proselytes, meaning they are converted Jews except for this part. They weren't fully converted Jews because the God-fearers were uncircumcised. Okay, And so the, the God-fearers are those Gentiles that worship in the temple, in, well, in a certain part of the temple. Um, they believe in the God of Israel. They believe in Yahweh. But they are not officially Jewish. One, because they're not ethnically Jew, but they're not officially converts because they have not been circumcised. And Cornelius, who is the highlight of this chapter, is considered to be a God-fearer. And so Cornelius is a Gentile who is a converted Jew who also serves in the military, as we will see. So what we'll do this morning, um, I I am going to read these in each section. There are six different sections, and so I'm just going to read through it. So please follow along in your Bible, your device. It'll be on the screen if you have neither. Um, And and if you'd like a copy of God's Word, there's one right in front of you. Feel free to grab that and and open it up. But we'll talk through it, and then I'll give some commentary along the way. We're going to slow down at Peter's sermon, because I believe it holds the, the, the content that this chapter is meant for us to understand and to apply. And then we'll close by seeing the result of of Peter's sermon. All right, so let's let's jump in here. Acts chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. First section is verses 1 through 8, and it's introducing Cornelius to us. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household. He gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. And when the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. And so we're introduced to Cornelius. Cornelius was successful. Cornelius was a centurion, so he was the leader of at least a hundred other soldiers. Cornelius was therefore influential. Cornelius was also faithful. And so again, he's, he's among the God-fearers, and so he's faithfully Jewish, except for the fact that he has not been circumcised. We also will learn through this passage that not only is Cornelius all these other things, but he's also a family man. And he receives really clear instruction. Now, there's a lot of supernatural that's going on in Acts chapter 10, but if you've been with us through this journey, this, this shouldn't be surprising Because there has been an awful lot of supernatural happenings in Acts already. But this is what happens. This angel appears to Cornelius and gives him really clear instruction. Even though there's not a whole lot of information around it. Hey, there's a man named Peter. He's at the house of another man named Simon that's a tanner. Send men to him. And so we pick up in verse 9. And we see the Lord's preparation of Peter. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. So it's about noon, and remember Peter from last week is staying at Simon the Tanner's house, and all of their houses had flat rooftops with easy access. Now, I I will add just a side note. The fact that he's a tanner 
uh, lets us know the kind of work that he does. And that, that's nasty work. Like especially in a time where there was, there was no refrigeration, there was nothing that could be frozen. I don't know if you've ever tanned a hide at all or know what that entails, but it is gross. So the stench could be strong around Simon the Tanner's house. Nonetheless, Peter finds his, his way to the rooftop to pray. In verse 10, I can really relate to Peter here. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance. Now, uh, he, he's trying to pray and he's distracted. I didn't think I would get any public amens. But if we're honest, we can relate. Um, his distraction here in particular is that he's hungry. Uh, you know, you might would argue, well, his blood sugar drops, so he goes into a trance. I, I don't think that's what's happening here. In fact, I know that's not what's happening, because look at verse 11. And it says, In this trance, and saw the heavens open, and something like a great sheet descending down, uh, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. Verse 12. And in it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air, and there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. Okay, so don't forget he's hungry. He falls into a trance. And, and in this trance, there's a sheet that drops down that has four corners. And apparently on this sheet are all of these different kinds of animals. Now, remember what I told you at the beginning is, are, you know, in these categories of people, that's important because you have Jews who have... have received the law of Moses, and Leviticus goes out of its way to let us know that there are specific laws that the Jewish people were to avoid. And as he sees this vision, basically every animal that was to be avoided are the animals that he sees. And in this trance, in this vision from the Lord, Peter is commanded to rise, to kill, and to eat. And so there's some conflict in Peter's heart and mind. All he's ever known is abstaining from these foods and these animals because they're unclean. Well, we see this in Peter's response, verse 14. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. Now, commentators are back and forth on this response. Is this Peter operating in normal Peter fashion where he, he opens his mouth a little too quickly because they would point out that calling him Lord and then saying no to something he commands just really don't go hand in hand. Maybe this is him you know, just, just really resisting against the Lord. But there's also those that would say that this is a, Peter thinks this is a test. Like maybe he's being tested. Like would he stick to his roots? Would he stick to his Jewish roots? Would he stick to, at this point, the law of Moses? And I'd I, I lean that way. I really think Peter sees this as a, a test from the Lord. And so he responds in the way that he does. Well, verse 15, he gets clarity. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. And now, now look at verse 16. This is interesting. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. The fact that it happened three times let me know that some of the commentators might all be right. Maybe at first he was resisting just out of just an act of rebellion to the Lord. And then after he kind of came to his senses after the Lord's response, maybe he's going, well, wait a minute, it, it, is this a test? Like, these are the laws that I've always known. I've, I've never known anything differently. But the message is clear. 
And the message is, don't call unclean what I have called clean. In verse 17, Peter meets with the messengers. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed, and again, I think at this point we all understand why he's perplexed. When we are challenged, especially theologically, based on something that we've always believed to be true and right and necessary, when that is challenged, we're perplexed. There's a crisis of belief in our hearts and in our minds. And so he is inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean. Behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. Verse 19, and while Peter was pondering the vision, so he's inwardly perplexed, he can't shake what he's seen, he's pondering the vision. Verse 19, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Verse 20, rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. Verse 21, and Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for what is the reason for your coming and they said Cornelius a centurion an upright and God-fearing man who was well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say so he invited them in to be his guests the next day he rose and went away with them and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him it's a straightforward interaction. One of the things I love the most about this is that the Lord had prepared both of them for this moment. Culturally, this isn't normal behavior. We've talked a lot about the sovereignty of God, the providence of God, since we've been in the book of Acts. And it's because God is sovereign and God does have providence he is providential and so it's clearly seen throughout the book of acts and and i don't want us to overlook the fact that god himself is orchestrating all of this peter is not going to be able to get credit for this he went to the roof to pray and got hungry cornelius was just going about his normal day as a centurion and an angel appeared to him both of these men have been prepared by god for what they're about to experience and what we're about to read. So verses 24 through 20, I'm sorry, 33, we see Peter in Caesarea. And on the following day, they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. So, so Cornelius has high expectations. He, he knows who Peter is. He's, he's caught wind of Peter. He, he knows that God has used this man in a tremendous way. Not only has he known him probably as a Jew, but he also knows him now as this man that has been preaching and seen tremendous things happen through him. Verse 26, I'm sorry, verse 25. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up saying, stand up. I too am a man. I want to pause here because there is something clearly going on in Peter's heart. First and foremost, he's in a house that he wouldn't normally be in. He's associating with people that 
he's never associated with. And in Peter's background, in his mind, I don't know if he thought this, but there are certainly those who would have thought this, that the Gentile should bow down and worship the Jew as the Jew enters the house because the Jew, as God's chosen people, they are superior. You see, the Jewish people had, had really highly misunderstood the doctrine of election and that it created this ethnic pride when the doctrine of election is meant to do the exact opposite. God went out of his way to the Jewish people to let them know, I chose you not because you're the strongest, not because you're the smartest, not because you're the prettiest. In fact, you're not any of those things. You're the least of all the peoples. I chose you and I love you. And the basis for that choosing and that love is that I love you. That, like, that's it. Like, so the basis of God's love for His people is that He loves His people. It's, it's not because of performance. It's not because of what His people offer Him. He loves them because He loves them. But in the Jew, over time, this created this ethnic pride. But we know something's happening in Peter's heart because he tells this Gentile, even though he is a God-fearer, just, just stand up. Dude, I'm a man just like you. That's not Jewish talk. Verse 26, but Peter lifted him up saying, stand up, I too am a man. Verse 27, and as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. Now, I love 28. Not exactly a great PR move by Peter, okay? And he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit any one of another nation. <laughs> Read the room, dude. You know, I mean like, I don't know. But God has shown me, and if you highlight or you underline what, what's happening in his heart, who's doing it. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me in verse 30. And Cornelius said, four days ago about this hour... I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard, and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. And I feel like Peter, I wonder if Peter's going, well, of course he did. Right, of course the Lord appeared to you and prepared you and then asked you to send men and then why the men are on their way to me. I know nothing of this. I go to pray, I'm hungry, fall into a trance and then the Lord appears to me. The Lord is orchestrating all of this. In verse 32, send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon Tanner. Verse 33, so I sent for you at once and you have been kind enough to come. Now therefore we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. I, I don't know if y'all know this about yourselves, but this happens to preachers all the time. We show up at an event, a function, a gathering, 
And you all have an expectation of that preacher to say something or to at least pray. When Charlie and I first got married, I was not a pastor. I worked for Alabama Power. And she, uh, those of you, and it, this is going to sound weird if you have no context. I understand we're used to it, okay? But she's a ventriloquist, and her little dummy is named Andy. And she used to go around to a lot of different churches and do Bible schools and do different things. Well, we went to a church in Adamsville, and I was with her. And, and, and in college and high school, I took zeros on anything that required public speaking. Just, let, just, just so you know, just a little background for me. And so we walk in, and there's an auditorium. I mean, there's, there's probably at least 250 to 300 people in there. And it was a, it was a senior adult Valentine's banquet. And Charlie was the gospel-sharing comedy essentially, with Andy. Well, they get done, and, and they look dead at me. They, I, the guy running the thing, I guess the pastor, he looks dead at me and said, Miss Atchison, we're so glad that you came and shared with us. We feel confident that your husband has a word, too. <laughs> Ask Charlie about it. I never looked up. Never said a word. Never did anything. But culturally... I was no pastor at the time, but, but culturally, this is something that's kept traction in that we expect people that we think are sent from God or been directed by God to share a specific word to us. But brothers and sisters, part of what God's doing here in Peter's heart and part of our application is to understand, um, hear Peter say, get up, I'm a man too. Because of Jesus Christ. We all have the same access to the same God. His Holy Spirit is just as much in you if you've trusted Him as it's in me. We just happen to have different gifts. And so, Peter goes on in verses 34 through 43 after he hears from Cornelius, Hey, uh, we're all here to hear from you, Peter. And Brandon read the sermon at the beginning of our service, and so I'm not going to read it in its entirety here for time's sake. But this content is the gospel. And one of the applications for us to understand as we take our time through this sermon, point by point, is that this isn't only the way that Peter did it. Or to say it another way, this isn't just what was relevant in the first century. The content of this sermon is still the same content that has the power to save. In any other church preaching any other content, essentially, as their boast and primary message, I say this with humility, but with clarity, is not a church. A Christian church proclaims the Christian gospel. And what Peter is preaching over and over and over again in the book of Acts is a clear message that is the gospel. And so even though we might change the mode and the way that we do things, the content of the message has been relevant since God created it. And the same need that all these gathered in Cornelius' house have in the first century is the exact same need that we all have today. And it's the content of this specific message that is specifically about Jesus Christ as the only hope for sinners. So the first thing that he says... Well, well, let me go back to the beginning of verse 34 because like, 
it, it, it's easy to skip, but there's an emphasis here clearly. So Peter opened his mouth. Okay, like that seems a little bit like why so explicit? Because the gospel is a message that has content and words that are meant to be spoken, that are meant to be heard, that are meant to be believed. And so think of all the supernatural that's going on in this story. It's not the angel that proclaims the message of salvation. It's, it's not the vision of the sheet. I mean, I, I mean, think of all of the things that are going on to get to this moment where a human being opens his mouth while looking other human beings in the eyes and proclaims the content of the gospel that's meant to be heard and believed. And that is where the miracle of conversion comes. It's through the proclamation of this specific content that the Holy Spirit, as we'll see in a second, falls and works powerfully. But, but there's a side of us that sort of goes, well, I'll, I'll, I'd rather have the, the visions and the angels and the trance, trances. I want to seek out the supernatural because the preaching's just boring. <laughs> Like, I've tried to read the Bible, but it's just, I, I just can't understand. It's just not for me, and so I want to seek out these fresh new revelations, these fresh new movements of the Spirit that are at best psychological, at worst demonic. And so we need to fight together to be students, proclaimers and students of the Word of God. Because it's only through the proclamation of the word of God and the content of the gospel that salvation comes. So, after he opens his mouth, he says this, Truly I understand. Some of your translations are more emphatic than that, but truly I understand. He didn't prior, okay, he didn't prior to the, to the trance on the roof when he's hungry. I tr truly I understand that God shows no partiality. Now, that, that is a humongous can of worms to open up, but the primary point for us is to understand this, in, in this context, is that salvation is for all people. The, God showing no partiality communicates to us that every single one of us stand in need because we all stand condemned before a holy God because we are all sinners and so God shows no partiality because we all have the same sin problem and we all have the same need Jesus and so the first point of his sermon is that gospel is for all peoples and there has been a metamorphosis in Peter's thinking he was prejudiced against Gentiles. He was partial to the Jews. This had been a huge part of his life. And brothers and sisters, if we're honest, we too have prejudices. We do. I'm not big on using the, the, the term racism because I think it's anti-biblical. Scripture communicates one race. And so the sin is partiality. The sin is prejudiced. There are different ethnicities, but we're all human beings, and that's part of the beauty of the message of creation. And now the gospel, as it comes to every single human that's a part of the human race, we all have the same need, and it's Jesus Christ. And God, the Creator, doesn't show partiality. And obviously, look around, loves diversity. The gospel is for 
for all people. But we have people, we have places, we have people that we think don't want the gospel or we don't want them to have the gospel. We have places that we would not dare take the gospel. We have these categories, but part of what this is doing in our hearts in regards to application is to challenge that. To see, like we saw last week, Jesus Christ, what? Anybody remember? Changes things. He changes things. The gospel is meant to penetrate to the core of who we are. And it changes the way not only that we look at our eternity, but it changes the way that we look at our neighbor. It changes the way that we look at our enemy. So the gospel is for all people. And so I I think we should join Peter in realizing that the gospel is for all. and The gospel affects every area of our lives. Second, man, and, and this, this deserves to be preached. The gospel is the good news of peace. In verse 36, it says, As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ. What, what peace is he talking about? Well, if we're going to talk about peace as it relates to the gospel, the first thing we have to understand is that we as sinners are not at peace with God. In fact, in Colossians, and I don't think I have this slide, but if you want to turn there, you can. I'm going to have to read it fast. But in Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 19, it says, For in Him, that's Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Now listen, through Him, Christ, to reconcile to Himself All things, whether on heaven or in earth, making peace by the blood of His cross. Well, why are we as sinners at odds with God? Well, listen, he goes on to say, and you, he's writing to Christians, this is who you were, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. If, if you have not trusted Jesus Christ this morning, according to Scripture, you are actively opposed to God. We're actively opposed. We are enemies. Not might be enemies. Not could be enemies. Not used to be. If you haven't trusted Jesus, you are currently an enemy of God. You are not at peace with God. And so when you think about peace and the greatest peace that's out there, this world loves peace and rightfully so. We should be seekers of peace and lovers of peace, but the most important peace is that we are at peace with God. So he says you are alienated, hostile. Verse 22, He, Jesus, has now reconciled in the body of flesh by His death in order to present you holy and blameless. Through Jesus Christ, there's peace with God. When we grasp that, one of the immediate applications and fruit out of that is we see people differently. Particularly people that we're hostile to. Particularly people that have hurt us. Now, again, I'm not trying to... I I know there's some deep hurt, deep pain, all that. Like, I, I, I get it. But we have to understand that God has made a way for us as enemies and those who have been hostile towards Him to be reconciled to Him and to have peace. 
And, and so the first peace that comes with the gospel is that we have peace with God. The second peace that comes with the gospel, as I've already mentioned, is that now it's possible for us to be at peace with those who we are opposed to. In fact, in Ephesians 2, man, I got to speed up. For he himself is our peace. That's Jesus who has made us both one. Okay, Jew and Gentile. He's made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments. Now I'm going to just skip down to, I think that's verse 16. And might reconcile us both, that's Jew and Gentile, to God in one body through the cross. Thereby, what is that last phrase? Killing what? The hostility. So we don't have to kill the hostility If we understand the gospel appropriately, not only has through Jesus the hostility between us and God been killed, but every single dividing barrier and wall that humanity has put up has been, what, killed through the cross. This is peace. This is what true peace looks like. This is where true peace comes from. Peace with God and understanding that peace with God through the cross of Christ. Therefore, now we can move forward with others and know. That even if they've sinned against us, it will be punished. Either on the back of Jesus or on the back of the sinner. It's not going unpunished. Therefore, we are freed because of the cross of Christ and the righteousness of Christ to love our enemies. Third, he mentions the baptism of Jesus. So so Jesus' baptism was his public approval from the Father. I really think that's why he adds the specific content here. You go back and read in Matthew chapter 3, when Jesus is baptized, he comes out of the water, and there's a voice from heaven that says, this is him, paraphrasing, this is my son, of whom I'm well pleased. And that inaugurated and was the catalyst for Jesus' earthly ministry. Fourth, Jesus' ministry showed his power over the devil. And if you want to just glance down at the middle of verse 38, after he mentions the baptism and the anointing of Jesus through the Holy Spirit, in that act, he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. This is further authentication that Jesus was exactly who they'd been looking for for centuries, and that he was the Messiah. And I love verse 39. Peter emphatically says, And we are witnesses. We've mentioned this a good bit. Like when when you have seen something, those of you that have to interview kids, you teachers, you parents, you, you police officers, you know, deputies, whatever you are, like like when you're asking somebody for a testimony, you can almost always tell when somebody has actually seen something. Their voice is a little bit Maybe high pitched. <laughs> Their passion is over the top because they know what they've seen. Peter is an eyewitness. Next is Jesus' crucifixion. Um, he, he mentions it uh, in the middle, at, or at the end of verse 39. They put him, that's Jesus, to death by hanging him on a tree. This is essential in gospel sharing. The crucifixion is essential in gospel sharing. Now, I do believe that those that are gathered in Cornelius' house were aware that Jesus was crucified. They know that he was an object of wrath, but maybe they just thought he was only an object of Roman and Jewish wrath. But that's not the only wrath that Jesus took on at the cross. The primary wrath that Jesus took at the cross was the wrath from the Father. Father. 
In Isaiah 53, it's clear. It was the Lord's will to crush him. When Jesus was baptized and anointed for his earthly ministry, it was always the purpose and the plan for that ministry to take him to Calvary's hill. And on that cross, when he was hanging on that tree, it wasn't the betrayal from the disciples. It wasn't the betrayal from Rome. It wasn't the betrayal from the Jews. That was the worst. It's when his father turned his back on him. And he took the full righteous indignation of his father's wrath. And his father turned his back on him. And listen, if you've trusted him, if you've trusted Christ, because the father turned his back on Jesus, he'll never turn his back on you. Next is the resurrection. Again, essential to gospel sharing. It's in the resurrection from the dead that Jesus solidified our forgiveness. He solidified us as a friend and a brother that, he, that, that we can count on, that He is reliable. The resurrection solidified Jesus as the absolute foundation for truth and righteousness. It solidified that work is not in vain but fruitful, and that is gospel work is not in vain. The resurrection solidifies the whole thing. If Jesus is not alive, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, then you should feel sorry for us, because it's all a lie. But He is alive. And His resurrection solidifies everything He said and everything that He did. Lastly, in this message, Peter proclaims Jesus as judge. Verse 42 says, And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. The, the gospel communicates Jesus as the judge of all the earth and of all history. And brothers and sisters and, and friends, one day soon the man Jesus Christ will sit on the very judgment seat of God and execute full and final justice for all mankind and for all time. I agree and I share this affinity that you have to understand and believe and receive Jesus as our advocate, but in believing and loving that truth, we cannot deny the fact in our gospel proclaiming that Jesus is not only a savior for those who will come to him, but he will stand as judge. And there won't be one corner of this earth that he's not unaware of. There won't be one human being ever that's lived that won't stand before him. And every single tongue will confess and every single knee will bow that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so, on this day when Jesus judges all things, everything else will stop, all other pursuits will cease. And on that great day, we will see it with our own eyes. And if you've trusted Him, we will feel its full effects as recipients of His mercy and His grace. And if you're wondering about judgment and it's just so confusing, and you're like, well, what? It? Listen, if we stand before a judge as holy and righteous as Jesus is, based on our own effort and merit and righteousness, we stand before Him condemned. 
and we will receive what is right and just and due. But if we stand before Him, having trusted His work and His righteousness and all that He's done for us through Calvary and His resurrection, and on this day of judgment when we stand before Him, it will not be a day of fear. It will not be a day of dread. Because there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, our sins are not going to surface in the future unforgiven. Paid in full. It's finished. And, and, and so, why? Why would we ease towards the day or uh, you know, maybe beeline towards the day of our standing before the Lord and be okay with standing before Him in our own righteousness when today the door of mercy and grace is open and Jesus Christ says, Sinners, come to me. Come to me and receive forgiveness. Be cleansed. From your sin. Verses 44 through 48. Um, oh man, I, I don't have a lot of time here, but this is a powerful moment. But what this is, this is a mini Pentecost, if you will. If, if you compare what happened to the last part of 10 to what happened at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, they're eerily similar. And what the Lord is doing here is He's letting us know that the Gentiles are legitimately in. The same Holy Spirit that fell on the Jews in Acts chapter 2 is the same Holy Spirit that is in you and I as believing Gentiles. And so, I'll close by reading 44 through 48. And while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And again, that's how it happens that's how it happens today. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out, notice the language, even on those old nasty Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, can anyone, is there anyone, I love this language, even the Gentiles. And now you got Peter going, is there anyone out there who would withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit? Notice, just as we have. And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain. For some days. That concludes our time in Acts chapter 10. Let's pray. We'd like to thank you for listening to the sermon audio from Covenant Church at Tuscaloosa. If you have any questions or would like to know more about our church, you can visit our website at www.covchurchtusk.com or you can email info at covchurchtusk.com. God bless.